Before we get into this episode, we have a quick favor to ask you. If you love our show, please scroll down to the review section of your favorite podcast platform and leave us a five-star rating. If you have a few more seconds, please also leave us a review telling us what you like most about our show. We read every single one of these and we appreciate them so much. This will also help us grow and get into the ears of those who love true crime and food as much as you do. Thanks and enjoy the episode. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com style. You're listening to Unsavory, where true crime meets food. Hi, everyone. I'm Sarah. And I'm Becca. And you're listening to Unsavory. Becca, do you know what episode this is? Our Halloween episode. Well, yes, but it's also our two-year anniversary. Oh my gosh, I didn't even realize. Happy anniversary. I didn't get you anything. (laughs) That's okay. You've done this podcast with me for two years. I think that's enough of a gift. (laughs) But I can't believe it's been two years. Yeah. Our very first episode was about Halloween candy tampering, and that came out two years ago on Halloween Day. Wow. Yeah, that was such a scary story for many reasons, but mainly because that was our first time recording together ever. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yes. We've come a long way since then. So if you want, go check out that episode. Listen with kind ears because it was our first time recording. (laughs) We talk about the history of trick-or-treating and we cover some true stories of Halloween candy tampering. Yeah. I do feel like a lot of our episodes are kind of Halloween-y. I was thinking about this the other day, but like, I feel like Typhoid Mary episode gives off that Mm -hmm. Halloween vibe. And same with like the, like maple syrup heist. So I feel like there's a wide variety, like a big selection of very spooky stories that you could listen to. Totally. Lots of spooky food crimes in our repertoire. Okay. So for today's episode, it's very, very, very fitting for Halloween because I think this is our spookiest ever. 
This is a topic that has sat on our episode list for ages because we were both too scared to cover it, but it had to happen at some point because I think this is truly the ultimate food crime. Do you want to say it, Becca? Oh, you're going to make me say it? Okay. <laughs> Starts with a C, ends with a hmm? <laughs> it's cannibalism. Oh, it sure is. Um, but before you get the ick and turn this episode off, I implore you to stick around because I had a really, really strong aversion to writing this episode. In fact, we always thought Becca would do this episode, but it kind of fell on my turn. But once I started researching and writing, I would actually say this is one of our most interesting and captivating stories yet. I'm terrified, but also very excited. Me too. Um, and this episode actually came at the perfect time because for some reason cannibalism is more present than usual in the media right now with shows like Dahmer about Jeffrey Dahmer and House of Hammer with the Army Hammer cannibalism fantasy allegations. But those stories, especially Dahmer, are, are way too close for comfort. They're too brutal. They're too gory. And they're definitely too recent to talk about such a tough topic. Mm -hmm. So today I'm going to tell you one of the most famous tales of survival cannibalism that took place in the Sierra Nevada mountains in 1846. We're talking about the Donner Party. Dum, dum, dum. So the Donner Party is one of the most well-documented cannibalism events thanks to diaries and letters that were actually written by party members and interviews with the survivors after the journey. Some of the survivors talked pretty openly about the cannibalism that took place, and others never, ever spoke about it at all. But when you look at what the Donner Party actually went through on the trail, you see that their journey is a true testament to the human will to survive, and they really had no other choice. Are you ready, Becca? Let's do it. The information in this podcast is for entertainment and educational purposes only. If you're interested in medical nutrition therapy or personalized nutrition advice, please talk to a physician or registered dietitian in your area. If you have a history of disordered eating, be advised that nutrition details will be discussed and take the steps you need to protect your recovery journey. All the citations and relevant links for anything mentioned in this episode will be in our show notes on our website, unsavorypodcast.com. This podcast may contain coarse language, mature subject matter, and content of a violent or disturbing nature. Listener discretion is advised. This is an independently produced podcast. If you'd like to donate to the podcast, you can sign up as a donor through the Patreon link in our bio. If you could rate, review, follow, and share our show with your true crime and food-loving friends, that would really help us out, and we will be forever grateful. Cannibalism is an incredibly taboo subject, and the vast majority of humans have a very strong aversion to it, myself included. And yet, there are many different types of cannibalism that have occurred throughout history. There have been cultures with rituals involving cannibalism. For example, the Foray tribe in Papua New Guinea used to have a practice of cooking and eating their deceased family members, which was thought to help free the spirit of the dead. The women and children would typically eat the brain of their loved ones, and over time, it was noticed that a strange disease called kuru was affecting them. The first signs of kuru were headaches and joint pain, but the afflicted would quickly deteriorate with decreased muscle control, tremors, difficulty speaking, and sporadic bursts of laughter. Eventually, the individual could no longer walk or eat, and they would die, um, turns out, much like mad cow disease, kuru was spread through a prion in the brains of the deceased person, which is why women and children were affected, less so than the men that would eat more of the muscle tissue. And this practice of cannibalism is no longer ongoing. It actually stopped in like the mid-1900s, but the last recorded case of kuru worldwide was in the early 2000s. 
So I I have heard of this, but the early 2000s isn't really that long ago. I didn't realize that it was that recent. Yeah, it's a little too close for comfort. Yeah. (laughs) And then we have criminal cannibalism, like Jeffrey Dahmer, where criminals are known to have feasted on their victims after killing them. Dahmer was also known as the Milwaukee Cannibal, and he was an American serial killer who committed the murder and dismemberment of 17 men and boys in the late 70s and 80s, and he cannibalized some of his later victims. And then there's survival cannibalism, in which people consume each other out of absolute necessity and desperation, which has been documented multiple times throughout history in Arctic expeditions, remote plane crashes, and famines and wars. We even talked about some survival cannibalism that occurred in our episode on Holodomor, the man-made famine in Ukraine in the 1930s. And that was one of our sadder episodes, but very informative. And we do talk about how the situation grew so desperate that there were families forced to make some very difficult decisions about what to eat. Tragic. So tragic. And then on a more (laughs) lighthearted question mark note, there's the alleged celebrity fantasy cannibalism, as we've seen with Army Hammer, the star of Call Me By Your Name, who has fallen from grace since his cannibalistic fantasies were revealed. For example, one of his ex-girlfriends recounted that he wanted to break her ribs, barbecue them, and eat them, allegedly. Yep. So our story today focuses on a story of cannibalism born out of desperation. It's estimated that people can live for about 8 to 21 days without food and up to two months if they are able to remain hydrated. But if you've ever been hangry before, you'll know that hunger can impact your mood within only a couple of hours. Days of hunger can seriously impact your ability to focus and think and maintain relationships and sleep properly, uh, etc. The list goes on and on. Mm -hmm. And once delirium starts to set in, you really aren't able to think clearly and you're motivated by your basic human instincts and would eat really whatever is available. So I actually did a mini presentation in one of my dietetic rotations on delirium in hospital settings, which is Mm. so freaking sad. But apparently up to like 40, I think it was like 40 or 42% of older adults are at risk of delirium in hospital since hospitals are like notoriously understaffed and unable to like help every patient eat. So, I mean, you've probably seen it, but a lot of older adults will have issues opening things like wrappers and and whatnot. And it can create like a big enough barrier to prevent somebody from eating. So it's just, it's one of those things that like you hear about and you think, yeah, this must be like a wilderness thing, but it happens Mm -hmm. in hospital settings too. It happens like in everyday life, delirium. Totally. And then like, yeah, I do see it all the time. You know, you can give someone unsure, but if they can't even open the bottle, that's a huge problem. Yeah. And the nursing staffs, the nursing team, they just don't have the capacity to sit with everyone mm-hmm. and, you know, encourage them to eat. But also sometimes if people are delirious, they'll refuse to eat. They really don't want to. And yeah. they're kind of disconnected with those hunger cues. So it's a really complicated issue that is unfortunately so common. And you actually kind of made me think about I wonder how the nursing crisis that we have in Ontario right now and the nursing shortage is impacting malnutrition in hospitals. Yeah. They don't have the capacity. Probably not good. I honestly feel like the crisis that we're going through right now and even just like hospital food in general could be a scandal that we cover one day. Yeah, I hope not, but you might be right. Mm -hmm. Anyways, so one researcher studying cannibalism in the Paleolithic era estimated that a human body would provide about... 125,000 to 144,000 calories, depending on body composition, of course. 
He concludes that humans are not really worth eating purely for nutritional reasons. The meat on one human's body could have provided a group of about 25 modern adult males with enough calories to survive for about half a day. So if you think of it that way, (laughs) there are better sources out there. Like at the time in the Paleolithic era, you might have had woolly mammoths and whatnot. Of course, there would be nutritional variation between humans, uh, but this is this is bad news for the Donner Party, especially since by the time people get desperate enough to resort to something like this, the victims themselves are usually already very malnourished. They've already succumbed to their malnourishment and they don't have a lot of lean body mass. Right. And are they kind of implying that the like caloric density isn't great enough when compared to like cattle or something like that? So this article I read was compared to like woolly mammoths specifically. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it was the Paleolithic era. But yes, I think so. Like if you're if you're resorting to killing a human, it's clearly your very last resort, but if there's other options available, it's not a preferable source for reasons other than the moral problems. Yeah. Okay, quick shout out to my sources. I watched a very old school documentary that made me feel like I was in fourth grade and the TV just got wheeled in, which is the best feeling ever. And it was called The Donner Party. It was directed by Rick Burns and narrated by David McCullough. It came out in 1992. It's free on YouTube. Anyone can watch it. I also cross-referenced a book called History of the Donner Party, A Tragedy of the Sierra by Charles McGlashan. And I used a variety of articles linked in our show notes, including our good old friend Wikipedia to help me kind of piece the storyline together. I will say that in my research, I did notice discrepancies between sources, usually with just the very small details. And at the time that the Donner Party was reported to the media in 1846, 1847, there was a lot of sensationalism and exaggeration about some of the details, some of the gory details, as you can imagine. So I do think 150 years later, they've put together most of the story, but some of the true details have probably been lost to time. So do you know the story? Only the like bare basics. I think they covered it on My Favorite Murder at one point, like a while ago. Yes, they did. And I've actually, I've heard this story a couple different times. It's on quite a few podcasts. And every single time, it just sucks me right in because it's the story of people being pushed to their absolute limits in multiple ways. And it really showcases that at the end of the day, we're pretty much nothing without being able to meet our basic needs. And it just makes you wonder, what would you do in this situation? Right. I'd like to think that I wouldn't resort to cannibalism, but you really Mm -hmm. never know. I'd like to think that too. But when you're so hungry and so far gone that it's not even really a choice I think you're making, I think it's like a primal instinct to eat whatever's there. Mm -hmm. At least that's what I imagine. (laughs) I've never been in this situation. And hopefully we never are in this situation. Yeah, freaking hope so. Okay. So in the spring of 1846, a group of pioneers left Missouri in a convoy of horse-drawn wagons with all their worldly possessions and hearts full of hope and ventured west along the Oregon Trail to start a new life in California. Little did they know that by the time their voyage was complete, nearly half of them would be dead. This grueling journey was actually a very common one at the time. Many pioneers were inspired to leave their East Coast homes and journey west to settle in beautiful California in search of better economic opportunities for their family. This sounds lovely and full of hope, but many were also inspired by the idea of manifest destiny. 
the idea that white Americans were divinely ordained to settle the entire continent of North America. And the phrase manifest destiny was actually coined only one year before our story begins, so in 1845. So I'm sure that this, a lot of people on this journey might have been pretty invested in that idea. So most pioneers would follow the Oregon Trail from the starting point in Independence, Missouri, and travel about 15 miles or 24 kilometers per day until they reached Oregon or California. So this journey took approximately four to six months, and it had to begin after the spring mud, and it had to finish before the winter snow, or the wagons would not be able to make the journey. This was pretty well known. And while the trail was no Route 66, it was fairly well-traveled and dotted with trading posts for supplies, and most importantly, it used a mountain pass that was relatively easy for the wagons to negotiate. A 27-year-old gentleman named Lansford Hastings was one of those dreaming pioneers who saw the potential for economic growth on the East Coast. In 1845, he published a book called The Emigrant's Guide to Oregon and California. And in this book, he proposed a shortcut that would take travelers on a more direct path right through the Great Salt Lake Desert. This would allegedly save the travelers 200 miles of travel. And this was also a route that at the time that he proposed it, Hastings had never actually traveled before. He looked at a map and said, like, this is a more direct route, but that's not how maps work. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's not how geography works. Terrain matters, as we'll learn. And at the time that the Donner Party set out on their journey, only two men, Hastings himself and one other, had ever crossed the Hastings cutoff at all, and nobody had done it with wagons. So he had done it before. But after publishing. So he published went through it once on a horse, and then was like... Good enough. So nobody had done it with wagons, and the wagons they're traveling with are... Like, these are no Fisher-Price wagons. These are wagon U-Hauls that have beds, and they carry all their possessions and supplies and even, like, stoves in some cases to move entire families cross-country. So basically, trailers. Yes, exactly. So in May 1846... There was a huge group of 700 wagons setting out from Independence, Missouri to make the journey west. Towards the very end of the wagon train, there was a group of 23 wagons that held the Reed and Donner families and their employees and a couple of other families, including the Eddies, Murphys, and Breens. A total of 87 people made up the Donner party. You can find the whole list of names. It's readily available even on Wikipedia, but I'll just read through some of the main characters from our story. First up, we have George Donner and the Donner family. George was 60 years old, which I feel like in 1846 is like 95. Mm -hmm. But he was 60 years old, and he was with his wife, Tamsin, and their three daughters, Frances, age six, Georgia, age four, Eliza, age three, and George's daughters from a previous marriage, Aletha, 14, and Leanna, 12. George's younger brother, Jacob, and his wife, Elizabeth, also joined with their five children, George, Mary, Isaac, Lewis, and Samuel, aged one to nine, and Elizabeth's sons from a previous marriage, Solomon and William Hook, aged 14 and 12. The Donners also brought their crew to drive the wagons and look after the animals, which was comprised of six young men aged 16 to 30. And already you know that these people are people who have the means to hire a team to move them cross-country. George himself was a pretty successful farmer. Alongside the Donner family was the Reed family, headed by James Reed, who had immigrated from Ireland with his widowed mother and moved to Illinois in the 1820s. 
And he was joined on the journey by his wife, Margaret, stepdaughter, Virginia, who's 13, and their children, Patty, James, and Thomas, and his mother, Sarah, who was 70. And Sarah was already suffering from tuberculosis, but James brought her along for the journey because he hoped that the warm California weather would improve her health. His wife, Margaret, also had chronic headaches, and he was hoping the same for her. And the Reeds had hired help themselves. They had four men and one woman, and they drove the Pioneer Palace Wagon, uh, as coined by his daughter, that had two levels, an iron stove, and bunks for sleeping. The Reed and Donner families had nine wagons just between the two of them, and the Donner Party is also sometimes referred to as the Donner-Reed Party. Several other families were also part of the wagon train. We have the Murphys, headed by Lavinia Murphy. She was a widow with 13. Teen children wow. going on this journey. Like, holy shit. The Breen family, Patrick and Margaret Breen, and their seven children. And then we have a German immigrant named Louis Kesselberg with his wife and daughter, and many others. You might have picked up on this, but there are a lot of children on this trip. We have 87 people that set out from Missouri. There are 29 men, 15 women, and 43 children spread over 23 wagons. Okay, it also sounds like there were a lot of second marriages in the 1800s, like a lot of second wives, um, stepchildren. That's kind of surprising to me. Totally. I had the same exact thought. And Tamsin Donner, I'm pretty sure she was like 46. I don't know why I didn't write it there. But I remember when I read it, I was like, you go, girl, because she was like, she's in her 40s for sure. And she has a three-year-old, a four-year-old, a six-year-old. So she, like in 1846, like... People call over 35 a geriatric pregnancy now. Yeah. And here she is, 1846, having kids in her 40s. Good for her. I know. I know. Okay. So there was also a young man named Luke Halloran. He had tuberculosis and and couldn't even ride horseback. He was so ill. And George Donner took him in and allowed him to ride in their wagon. And that right there exemplifies what George Donner was like. He was a very generous man, a strong leader, and people really liked him which is why he would eventually become the leader of the Donner Party, despite James Reed being the more obvious choice in terms of wealth, age, and experience. At only one month into the journey, the group had traveled 450 miles. For the Canadians, that's 720 kilometers, with about 200 miles or 320 kilometers to go before their first checkpoint at Fort Laramie. And just FYI, I'm going to post a map on our Instagram so you can follow along. I had to Google the map probably 10,000 times while writing this just so I could figure out where exactly they were. But at this point, the group was running about one week behind schedule as they'd run into some rising rivers and rain. But overall, things were going smoothly and spirits were high. I feel like we haven't even gotten to the worst parts of this trip yet. And I'm already wondering what all of these kids did all day, every day. This must have been so boring for them without things like iPads. I know. Like, what is it? Is it just walking and walking and walking? I'm sure they played like cards. I'm sure they played games in the wagons, but or like just played in the fields while everyone else like worked along this grueling trail. Who knows? Now, remember Lansford Hastings? This is the one who looked at a map and decided there was a faster route and published a book about it. Well, you don't just sell books by word of mouth in 1846. So Lansford Hastings was actually sending out riders along the trail to catch travelers before the turnoff and convince them to take his route. Most of the migrants opted to travel the well-established route, but the Donner and Reed parties decided to take Hastings' word for it and try the shortcut. 
neither the Donner or the Reed families had a lot of experience with traveling mountainous land, especially with wagons, or had any knowledge of how to interact with the indigenous peoples along the route who could provide them with guidance and food. And so this shorter route, which in theory would save them about 200 miles, which is huge, was very appealing. Mm -hmm. Now, a journalist who was also on the trail, his name was Edwin Bryant. He was a week ahead of the Donner Party on the trail, and he had actually seen the first part of Hastings Cutoff himself. And he knew right away that it would be way too difficult for the Donner Party to handle, especially with so many women and children and their large, extravagant wagons. And so he sent letters to the Donner Party warning them not to take the cutoff. But the Donner Party would never receive those letters. And it's rumored that a man named Jim Bridger concealed the letters from the Donner Party intentionally because he owned a supply post along the Hastings Cutoff route that would do much better if migrants traveled past it. It's bad business. That's bad business. And in fact, Bridger told the Donner and Reed families that the shortcut would be a smooth trip. Gutless. So now when the party was resting at their first checkpoint, Fort Laramie, James Reed actually ran into an old friend who's also an experienced mountain man, James Kleiman, and he advised Reed not to take the Hastings cutoff. He knew it would be too intense. But unfortunately, they did not heed his advice. And so on July 31st, 1846, two and a half months after their departure, the Donner Party set out to tackle Hastings Cutoff. And pretty much immediately, it was way worse than they could have ever imagined. The rocky ledges were so steep, they had to lock the wheels of their wagon just to keep themselves from sliding down. They soon stumbled upon a letter from Hastings telling the party to stop traveling until he was able to come back to guide them. But they're already behind schedule. They don't really have time to waste and they have to get to California before the snow. So James Reed rides ahead to find him, finds him after five days, and Hastings says, sorry, I actually can't come back and help you. So at this point, they have to make the decision whether to turn back and take the conventional route, which would take a significant amount of time, or continue without Hastings along the path that they've already started. And at James Reed's urging, they decide to continue with the cutoff. Reed, come on. I know. (laughs) That's what everyone else started to say, too. The route was so tough that the party's progress slowed from 15 miles per day to 1.5 miles per day. And all men that were able were required to clear brush and cut trees and heave rocks from the trail. Not surprisingly, tension grew day by day, particularly towards James Reed for choosing to stick to the cutoff route. The group found their way to the edge of the Great Salt Lake Desert, which is a huge dry lake with salt deposits. So it kind of looks like a thin layer of snow, but it's like a fine, white, dusty texture. And here the party discovered a letter from Hastings saying that they had two days and two nights of difficult travel ahead of them without any grass or water. By this point, the oxen and horses that are pulling their wagons and then carrying supplies are already exhausted and super thin, but there's no alternative. So they packed three days of grass and water for the animals just to be safe because it's a two-day journey. So they venture out over the desert. During the day, the moisture kind of below the surface bubbles up and turns the ground into like a kind of bubblegum goopy texture that was really difficult to travel with the wheels of the wagon. And during the night, the pioneers nearly froze in sub-zero temperatures. And the so-called two-day, two-night journey that Hastings had warned them about 
it took six and they ran out of water and grass on day three. So they lost many of their animals. They were so dehydrated that they would just like kind of go nuts and run away into the desert. They lost wagons that got stuck in the ground and somehow they made it to the other side with no human lives being lost in the desert, but it was rough. It's always so sad to me when the animals go. Like you would never Mm -hmm. leave for like a long journey without packing enough fuel to get you through it. I know. And I feel like so much of this story focuses on the humans not having enough to eat Mm -hmm. and their experience with starvation and malnutrition. But there are hundreds of oxen and horses on this trip, too, that also starve to death and also experience kind of similar reactions to how humans do. Like they go delirious, they're dehydrated, they're unable to function and they slowly break down. So it's really sad to think about. Okay. Also, one other question. How are they delivering letters? Like are they, are there are there mailboxes along this trail or like are they finding just this kind letter of. from Hastings in the bush? <laughs> How does this work? But like what I picture is those tiny libraries that are like alongside neighborhood streets and people just mm-hmm. put a little letter in there and then whoever comes down the trail next can pick it up. That's what I picture. We have a few of those libraries in our neighborhood and um, you can actually find one of them on Google Maps, which I think is hilarious. Oh, that's cute. <laughs> yeah. I always look at them. Usually it's like not the reads I'm looking for. <laughs> there's Sometimes there's good stuff in there. I, always, I love it when there's like smut novels. Yeah. <laughs> Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Okay, so on the other side of the Great Salt Lake Desert, the group spends days hydrating at a river and trying to recover all the wagons that have been left behind in the desert. For a moment, though, it did seem like the party's luck might be turning around. Maybe they had made it through the worst of it. So they navigated through the valley next to the Ruby Mountains pretty much without incident. And on September 26th, four and a half months after leaving Missouri, the group had officially made it through Hastings Cutoff and reconnected with the traditional trail a full month behind schedule. So they made it through, but it put them significantly behind. 
So now they're back on the well-traveled trail, but their troubles are far from over. Soon after, the group meets a band of indigenous people defending their land, who shot and stole several of their remaining oxen and horses. And then an altercation over an oxen between James Reed and another man named John Snyder resulted in James Reed stabbing Snyder in the chest and killing him. And like I said, Reed at this point was just not popular with the group. And even though witnesses had seen Snyder instigate the fight by abusing one of Reed's remaining oxen, they still opted to banish Reed from the group for the murder. And he had to travel ahead alone, leaving his wife and four children behind. I feel like Reed's intentions were good. Like he didn't intend to Mm -hmm. navigate them the wrong way. And he was just defending his method of transportation. Yeah. Okay, was Snyder a part of the, like, original crew, or was he somebody they met along the way? He was part of the original crew, and there were so many names in the original crew that I didn't name, especially, like, the ones who weren't part of a family. So there were a bunch of single men on the trip. I don't know specifically off the top of my head who Snyder was, but I think he was just one of the single Mm. men, maybe one of the hired men. And I feel for Reed, too. I think he's just trying to do the best he could with the limited amount of experience he had. He was not a mountain man. (laughs) He was a successful kind of businessman on the East Coast. So I do feel for him. There was no way for him to know what was coming ahead. And he kind of does redeem himself. So hang tight. Oh, good. So the trials that the Donner Party had endured at this point had resulted in splintered groups where they were each looking out for themselves and distrustful of the others. Fall was upon them and grass was becoming scarce and the animals were becoming weaker by the day. To relieve the animal's load, everyone was expected to walk. Those who couldn't walk were left behind. An elderly Belgian man who was traveling with the Kesselbergs, his name was Mr. Hardcoop, he was kicked out of their wagon in late September, and no other families had the resources to take him in, and he was left sitting by the side of the road. Without animals, families were forced to abandon their wagons completely that carried all of their possessions and walk, carrying their children with very little food or water to help give them strength. They sometimes boiled bark, twigs, and leaves as food when things got really scarce. They had very little time to rest and replenish their energy as it was a race against the clock to beat the snow. At this point, the Donner Party had endured far more than most pioneers And while they had traveled nearly the full distance of the trail at this point, their journey was only about halfway done. Oh no, this is awful already. It's it's just going to get worse. So by late October, the party was facing one final push over the mountains. And on the other side of the summit, it would be downhill from there and only about 90 miles to safety. So think about the journey they've come. This is a 2,500 mile journey total. 90 miles to safety. Like, just put a little pin in that. So close. And remember that throughout this. Yeah, so close. So relatively close. The crew had been told that the pass wouldn't get snow until mid-November. As Canadians, we know you cannot rely. Snow comes when snow Mm -hmm. comes. Sometimes it's October. Sometimes it's January. But they were told that the pass wouldn't get snow until mid-November. So they had to decide if they should rest their remaining cattle or forge ahead. And while they were kind of deciding, one gentleman, William Pike, he was killed when a gun was accidentally discharged. And the accident kind of like just pushed the families over the limit. They were like, let's freaking go. So the Breens, the Kesselbergs, the Reeds, and the Murphys, with the Donners traveling last, all go for this one last push over the summit. 
And just a few miles into this final push, an axle broke on one of the wagons and the wagon had to be left behind. And George Donner was trying to cut wood to make a new axle and he cut his hand. This is important. It seemed like just a surface wound. So the snow started to fall pretty much right away. The Breen family was in the lead and they made their way up the 1,000 foot vertical slope to Truckee Lake where there were some abandoned cabins, and then they continued to push through to the summit of the mountain. The Eddies and the Kesselbergs joined them, and then together, as three families, they tried to push forward over the summit. But at this point, they're faced with five to ten foot snowdrifts. They couldn't even see the trail. They certainly couldn't move their wagons, and they had to turn back. There was really no choice in the matter. It was only November 4th. This is ten days before they were expecting the first snow, And now they were faced with an eight-day brutal snowstorm. The families had no choice but to set up camp at Truckee Lake for the winter. There were three existing log cabins with dirt floors and roofs that were in desperate need of a patch job, which the families patched with the ox hide from their dead oxen. The Donners set up their camp farther down the trail, and this was comprised of just canvas tents. Okay, but at least there were, like, buildings there that they could... Yeah, like, thank goodness. Yeah. The death toll would have been way higher if they didn't have those cabins. Like, what would their other option have been? The wagons, I guess. But at this point, the Donner Party camp was just the 90 miles from their safe destination, but the extreme weather had completely destroyed their chance of making it. So as you can imagine, there's very little food left at the camps. The remaining animals begin to die of starvation, and their bodies are frozen and stacked and, of course, used for food. And unfortunately, the pioneers were not experienced fishermen or hunters. So one man, William Eddy, he killed a bear, but there was no luck after that. Some families were better off than others in terms of supplies. And this actually created some tension and some complicated social dynamics where the better off families would sell goods to the worst off families at like an extreme price, Mm -hmm. making the families indebted to them because they didn't have the money to pay or the supplies to pay at that time. But let's be honest, none of the families were in good shape by any means at this point. No, and this does not sound like good teamwork. I feel like in order to make it through a winter like this, you kind of have to bond together. Support each other, for sure. But, like, there's so many children, and everybody wants to support their children. Right. It's, yeah. Over, like, half of the people on this trip are kids. So sad. Desperation grew in the camp, and some started to reason that individuals might succeed in navigating the pass in smaller groups without the wagons. So the wagons and the children are really the biggest barrier here to crossing the pass in the snow. And there were several attempts made, but each time they returned defeated. Another severe snowstorm in November lasted more than a week, covering the area so deeply that the cattle and horses, their only remaining food, died in the snow. Oh, no. I know. Life at the Truckee Lake camps was absolutely miserable. The cabins were cramped and filthy. It snowed so much that they could barely go outside. Diets consisted of dried ox hide either gnawed on or boiled into a glue-like jelly. Ox and horse bones were boiled repeatedly to make broth, and they became so brittle that they would crumble. And bit by bit, the Murphy children picked apart the ox hide rug that lay in front of their fireplace, roasted it, and ate it. In early December, a semi-relief came when a man named Charles Stanton brought supplies to the group, along with two young Indigenous boys, Salvador and Louis, who would act as guides for the Donner Party's next attempt at escape. 
So on December 16th, a group of 17 of the strongest men and women set off from Truckee Lake on snowshoes to make a final attempt at making it to safety. Many of them left their young children behind with the remaining adults, not knowing if they would still be alive if and when they returned. They packed lightly, taking about six days' rations, and I really have no idea what they were rationing at this point, but I'm assuming some of the remaining meat from the oxen and the horses and some of the ox hide. They packed a rifle, a blanket, a hatchet, and some pistols, and as I've said, but it's still kind of mind-blowing, the journey from Truckee Lake to safety in Bear Valley was only about 90 miles, so it seemed like they could do it. How long would that take to walk if it was like normal terrain? I think they were doing like when when conditions were good, they were doing 15 miles or 24 kilometers a day. That was with the wagons and the horses. I looked it up. So it says that if you're walking at a relaxed pace, it would Mm -hmm. take 45 hours. If you're walking at a more moderate pace, it would only take 30 hours on flat terrain. Flat terrain without snow, without snowshoes. And with your, like, full energy and probably snacks. So that seems so close. So now that this group is leaving, this means that two-thirds of the people left at the camp are children. For food, they caught mice that stayed straight into their cabins, and most of them started to become so weak that they spent all of their time in bed. And at the Donner camp, we had Jacob Donner, who's George Donner's younger brother, And three of the hired men had died, and George's hand, remember that surface-level cut, Mm -hmm. was now so gangrenous that he couldn't work or help out at all. Oh, no. Have you seen gangrene before? Yeah. Yeah. It's not not cute. It's definitely not. Brutal infection. Yes. So the snowshoe crew was making decent headway without the children, but they were already malnourished, and so trudging through 12 feet of snow, it was not exactly easy. They're also snowblind because everything is covered in snow. This is like snow so deep that it's covering the cabin's roofs. It's so, so deep. So they're snowblind. They have a really hard time following the trail or even seeing where it's supposed to be. And of course, as they get hungrier and hungrier, delirium sets in. So it wasn't long before someone suggested that one of them should volunteer to die in order to feed the others. The group actually prepared a lottery and drew pieces of paper to decide who would die. And a gentleman named Patrick Dolan drew the unlucky long strip of paper. However, no one could actually bring themselves to kill him. And the ever-reasonable William Eddy, this is the guy who killed the bear. Mm -hmm. He's like a decent hunter. And I think he's the biggest hero in the story. Just stay tuned for (laughs) Eddy. But he suggested that they keep moving until someone died naturally. But before they could get moving again, another blizzard forced the group to a halt. Antonio, an animal handler, was the first to die. Franklin Graves was next. And others showed signs of hypothermia and delirium, like Patrick Dolan, who began to rant deliriously. He stripped off all his clothes and he ran into the woods and died. And did you know that's like a kind of common hypothermia thing that you start to feel so hot you like take off your clothes? I ha- Yeah, I had heard. I have heard that before. Yeah. So that was starting to happen too. Patrick Dolan is allegedly the first to be eaten. And it's suggested that it's because some in the group were just so close to death that it was really the only option. William Eddy and the two indigenous gentlemen, Salvador and Louis, refused to eat. The next morning, the group stripped the muscle and organs from the bodies of Antonio, Dolan, Graves, and Murphy, the four who had passed naturally so far. And they dried the flesh to store for the days ahead, 
and they took great care to ensure that nobody actually ate their relatives. So even at this point of desperation, care was still taken, and it's clear that no one was comfortable with what was happening. Man, I I don't know. Do you think that a lot of the animals at first were just kind of disregarded? Because there were hundreds of animals that were dying. Mm-hmm. Why weren't they doing this with the animals first? Or were they? So they definitely were. I think it just ran out kind of quickly. And some of their animals were stolen or shot. Some ran away in the desert. But I do think they they tried to make use of the animals as they died. But this mm-hmm. is a party of 87 people. Yeah. So I think that I think those supplies were completely depleted. And by the time the animals passed, they were so malnourished as well that they wouldn't have had a healthy, like a huge supply of meat. Right. So one of the men, William Foster, was crazed with hunger and he started talking about killing Salvador and Lewis for food. William Eddy, my hero, <laughs> warned them. <laughs> and so they quietly left in the night. Another man, Jay Fostick, he died overnight. And now there's only seven remaining members of the original 17 that had set out. William Eddy and Mary Graves actually went out hunting and killed a deer. I'm like, were we not doing that the whole time? But by the time they returned, Fostick's body had already been cut apart and used for food. For several more days, this is 25 days since they'd left the Truckee Lake camp, they came across Salvador and Louis sitting in the snow. They hadn't eaten for about nine days and were close to death. So William Foster shot them, believing that their flesh was the rest of the group's last hope of avoiding death from starvation. So it is like it's the depths of winter. Hunting is definitely not a viable option. And they're walking. They're just like constantly walking. Yeah. They need so much energy, right? So I feel like even, I mean, they had six bodies, human bodies and a deer body. That kind of sounds like a lot of nourishment. But I think at this point in their starvation, they were probably like hypermetabolic and they're working all the time. Yeah. And they're just having protein fat, right? Yeah. Yeah. Got to mix in some carbs. Yeah. Need that energy. Okay. So a few days later, the group stumbled into an indigenous settlement looking so deteriorated that the camp's inhabitants actually first ran away out of fear. The indigenous people gave them some of their food, acorns, grass, and pine nuts. And after a few days, William Eddy actually was able to continue on with the help of some tribe members to a ranch in a small farming community at the edge of the Sacramento Valley. And he told community members once he got there where the rest of the snowshoe crew could be found. And he quickly put together a rescue party who found the other six survivors on January 17th. So finally a win, finally a break. Their 90-mile journey from Truckee Lake had taken 33 days, so over a month, and claimed the lives of 10. Wow. Meanwhile, back at the camp, Margaret Reed had managed to save enough food for a Christmas pot of soup, much to the delight of her children, but by January, the oxhide roof was serving as their only source of food, and things were beyond desperate. Now, we're going to bring back James Reed. So he was the one who had stabbed someone mid-journey and then been banished. He actually made it out of the Sierra Nevada to Rancho Johnson in late October, so before the snows. And he was safe and recovering, but very worried about his family and friends, and he had been pleading with authorities to send them help. One major barrier to putting together a rescue party at this time, which actually prolonged the rescue, was that most of the able-bodied men were engaged in the Mexican-American War at the time. 
So Reed swore that he would join American forces and fight in the Mexican-American War. And in return, a team of men was assembled to cross the pass and help the remaining members of the Donner Party. Wow. What a nice guy. He's still helping out even though they banished him from the group. I know. His wife was there too and his four children. So he really, you know, he wanted to get them back for sure safely. Of course. So a party of roughly 30 horses and a dozen men with lots of food supplies set out and they expect to find the Donner Party stuck on the western side of the mountain, so closer to California. But the Donner Party was actually stuck on the eastern part of the mountain because they had never crossed that pass. So they looked where they expected to find them. But after many days of searching in the deep snow, the rescue party chose to turn back. But James Reed pushed forward. He really wanted to find them. And so he actually made it to just 12 miles from the peak. Okay, this is in early November. So this is at the exact same time that the Donner Party was trying to cross the summit. And there was one like rumored account that it's suspected that James Reed was right there, 12 miles from the summit on the same day they were trying to pass. And then the snows came and he had to turn back and they had to turn back. Oh, gosh. Yeah, it would be such a cruel twist of fate. And like, no one will ever know because mm-hmm. <laughs> there was no location tracking back in the day. So the first rescue mission was unsuccessful. And while Reed would spend the next couple of months attempting to organize a second one, Like I said, most of the able-bodied men in California were in the war. So by February, Reed had been talking about this for so long and he had rallied so much support that the people of San Jose actually created a petition for the U.S. Navy to assist the Donner Party. And there was more public buzz about this because newspapers had actually started reporting stories of a snowshoe party that had resorted to cannibalism. So, and this is in February, so this is right after the six of the snowshoe party had already been rescued as well. So finally, a rescue party of 10 men set out on February 4th, featuring our guy, William Eddy. And the group made steady progress. They cached food at stations along the way so that they didn't have to carry it all and they could guarantee that on the way back they would still have some food. Very smart. Very smart. Two weeks later, on February 18th, the rescue party scaled the pass which is now actually known as the Donner Pass. And as they neared where the snow-covered cabins were supposed to be, they started yelling because there was nothing there. No people, no cabins. And so they're yelling, and all of a sudden, Mrs. Murphy pokes her head up out of a hole in the snow where her cabin was completely covered and wondered out loud, are you men from California or do you come from heaven? The relief party gave out food in small portions, concerned that it might kill them if the emaciated uh, pioneers overate, which is very smart. Very. surprised they even like had the foresight to do that. No kidding. All the cabins were completely buried in snow at this point and the sodden oxide roofs had begun to rot and the smell was overpowering. 13 people at the camps were dead. Their bodies were kind of loosely buried in the snow just near the cabin roofs. And some of the migrants seemed emotionally unstable, which is very fair. Three members of the rescue party trekked to the Donners and brought back four gaunt children and three adults. And at this point, George Donner's arm was so gangrenous that he couldn't move. 23 people were chosen to go with the rescue party, which left 21 remaining at the cabins at Truckee Lake. So even though they'd been rescued, the journey was far from over. 
This is the Donner Party. Remember, they have the worst luck of all time. So those that had remained at the cabin were extremely weak and they could barely walk. And when they arrived at the first food cache, it was discovered that an animal had broken in and eaten all the food. So they went without food for another four days. The Donner Party, they, like they just cannot catch a freaking break. The rescuers were concerned that the children wouldn't make it and some of them didn't. Some of them ate the buckskin fringe from one of the rescuers' pants and the shoelaces of another, much to the party's surprise. And I'm actually surprised there aren't any reports of, like, death from bowel obstructions with all the leather hide and, like, oxen hide that's been eaten. Yeah. I'm, like, pretty sure we can't break that down very well. (laughs) As the first rescue party trudged down the mountain, they ran into a second party that was being led up the mountain that included James Reed. And Margaret Reed, his wife, was in the first rescue party. And when she heard his voice, she apparently sank into the snow overwhelmed. After those rescued migrants made it to safety, William Hook, this is Jacob Donner's stepson, broke into food stores and ate so much food so quickly that he died. Oh, no. I know. So it's just so cruel. And like that would be your instinct if you're starving. This is like a he's 15 at this point, William Hook. He's either 13 or 15. There were two stepsons. But he likely died from refeeding syndrome, which is a metabolic disturbance that occurs when nutrition is introduced too quickly in people who are severely malnourished, which is honestly largely, we deal with it a lot. If you're a clinical dietitian in a hospital, it's one of the primary things we watch out for when people are coming in malnourished. So it's reasonably common, I would say, but something to watch out for. And this poor young boy was... Just didn't know about that, I'm sure. Yeah, of course. So on March 1st, the second relief party arrived at Truckee Lake. James Reed was reunited with his daughter, Patty, and his son, Tommy. An inspection of the Breen cabin found its occupants relatively well, but the Murphy cabin was in dire condition. So remember, Lavinia Murphy was the widow with 13 children. She was caring for her eight-year-old son, Simon, and the two young children of William Eddy and Foster, and she had deteriorated mentally, and she was now nearly blind. The children were listless and had not been cleaned in days. No one at Truckee Lake had died during this interim period between the first and second relief party, and this appears to be thanks to the cannibalism of those who had passed. So many of the rescue party found mutilated bodies and a hole that contained the dismembered body of Jacob Donner that was nourishing his own children. The second relief evacuated 17 migrants from Truckee Lake, and once again, their escape was not an easy one. A violent blizzard arose after they scaled the pass. Five-year-old Isaac Donner froze to death, and James Reed nearly died. Mary Donner's feet were badly burned because they were so frostbitten she didn't realize that they were so close to the fire. When the storm passed, the Breen and Graves families were physically unable to carry on, and the relief party had to leave them. So Elizabeth Graves and her son Franklin died shortly after, and the party survived by eating their bodies until they were rescued. Desperate to rescue their own children, William Foster and William Eddy, these are both two survivors of the snowshoe party that had to leave their children at the camp, they persuaded four other men to make a final rescue mission. So during their journey up the mountain, they find the 11 survivors of the Breen and Graves family sitting kind of listlessly around a sunken fire in the snow. And the relief party splits up here. So Foster and Eddie head towards Truckee Lake to rescue their own children. And the rest of the rescuers take one child each from the Breen and Graves families and head back to safety. 
But one man, one of the rescuers named John Stark, he refused to leave the others. And so what he did was assist the Breens and Graves to safety by advancing one child down the trail and then coming back to get another child down the trail and kind of doing that like piecemeal effort the entire way down the mountain. Wow. I know. There's some real heroes in this story. Like there's a lot of sadness and tragedy and sacrifice. But there's also like, it's amazing what humans can go through and what they'll do for other people. And yeah, there's a lot in the story. So Foster and Eddie finally arrive at Truckee Lake on March 14th, and they find their other children unfortunately dead. Louis Kesselberg, this is the German immigrant, he told Eddie that he had eaten the remains of his son. Eddie swore to murder Kesselberg if they ever met in California, and Eddie left the camp without Kesselberg. On April 10th, almost a month since the Third Relief had left, and almost a year since they left Missouri, a salvage party returned. They weren't even calling themselves a rescue party anymore. They went back to salvage what was remaining of the Donner's belongings. George and Tamson Donner were now dead. Tamson had always refused to leave George's side as well, even though he could barely move because of his gangrene. And at this point, the only remaining person alive at the camp was Louis Kesseberg, who was found with a full pot of human flesh and all of the Donner's valuables collected in his possession. In the aftermath of the Donner Party, Louis Kesseberg was the only survivor who was very open and willing to talk about his cannibalism in almost like a sensational way. And he actually went on to open a restaurant. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So <laughs> there's a lot. I'm telling you, this story is already so long. Like, I cut out so much, but just a quick aside, like, he was kind of deemed as, like, the guy or, like, branded as the guy who liked the cannibalism and, like, developed a taste for it. And then he sued for slander. They were suing he, each like, other after this? Yeah. Like, Are you kidding me? Yes, I know. There's more. There's, like, more and more and more, but there was less info there. And, like, just Kesselberg was always a shady guy. And he there was, like, rumors he might have kind of liked the cannibalism. Oh, gosh. Google at your own risk. <laughs> but, yeah, he opened a restaurant, which I'm just like, Really? After all that, but who knows? Maybe he, maybe it was all not true and he just developed a love for food after not having it for so long. Yeah. And I feel like after like a mission like this and being saved, the last thing I would <laughs> want to do is go through like a defamation case. This is, that's ridiculous. Yeah, I know. <laughs> okay. So of the 87 members of the Donner Party, only 48 survived. They had come. 2,500 miles in seven months to lose their race with the weather by one day, only 90 miles from safety. Okay? Like, if they had been there one day sooner, they would have gotten over the pass without that snowstorm. Like, it gives me chills how close they were. And how unlucky they were. Yeah. The deaths at Truckee Lake and at the Donner Camp as well and in the snowshoe party were likely caused by a combination of factors, which included extended malnutrition, overwork due to the physical labor, and also exposure to cold. So several members became more susceptible to infection due to starvation, such as George Donner. But the three most significant factors in survival were age, sex, and the size of the family group that each member traveled with. So those who were under six and over the age 49 had almost no chance of survival. 
no one over 49 survived. Men were much more likely to die than women. In fact, two-thirds of women and children survived, and only one-third of the men survived. And this is for multiple reasons. So on average, women do require less daily calories than men, and we also store a higher percentage of body fat typically, which delays the effects of starvation and also insulates from the cold a little bit better. So it's a superpower. Men also take on more dangerous tasks and do more of the physical labor, especially on these journeys. So they were clearing the trails, which would have added to their physical decline. And then those that were part of a, of a family group tended to do better than the single men for multiple reasons, resource sharing, but also like support and community. And that is the tragic American classic tale of the Donner Party. Wow. What a story. What a story. <laughs> well done, Sarah. I feel like there Thank were you. a lot of lessons there. Like mm-hmm. things like lessons of like preparation, like deception, mm-hmm. traveling with children, and just mm-hmm. like the importance of food and like what people will do to survive. Yeah. And also greed. Like there's there's so many elements here, like greed, respecting others' land. Mm-hmm. Um don't take shortcuts. Like, like if some, if one of your good mountain men friends is like, hey, I think that's too intense for you, you listen. Yeah. Take I the think, well-traveled trail. I think don't take shortcuts is the biggest lesson of today's episode. Yeah, you're right. Don't take shortcuts. What a hard way to learn that lesson, though. Honestly. It's just tragedy after tragedy. So much tragedy. It's such an interesting story. And, like, it's amazing that there was so much information from the 1800s that you're able to like retell this story in so much detail today. I think there are historians who have like dedicated their lives to retelling this exact story and like piecing it together. Mm -hmm. It's so much about like the American dream and like pioneers and the wild frontier. Like it's such a kind of exciting time, I guess. And then this like absolutely terrible on terrible story happened. Mm -hmm. And I think it really has a special place in the hearts of a lot of people. Right. Yeah, it's not just about cannibalism. And you covered it very well. Thank you. Yeah, I want to finish on this quote um, by Virginia Reed, who is the stepdaughter of James Reed. And she said, in advice to a relative who was traveling in a later year, she wrote a letter and she said, remember, never take no cutoffs and hurry along as fast as you can. End quote. So that's kind of our take-home lesson here, too. No shortcuts. Great advice. Don't always take the road less traveled. Yes. Sometimes the traveled road is quite nice. (laughs) Absolutely. On that note, happy Halloween. Happy Halloween. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Unsavory. You can find all of the references and materials used to put this episode together in our show notes at unsavorypodcast.com. This is an independently produced podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you would rate, review, follow, and share our show with your true crime and food-loving friends. This is the best way that you can support us for free. If you'd like to donate to our podcast, you can sign up as a donor through our Patreon link in our bio. For more information, follow us on Instagram at unsavorypodcast. If you have an idea for an episode or segment, email us at unsavorypod at gmail.com. This podcast was recorded and edited by Jeff Devine. Learn more at Jeff Divine Sound on Instagram.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.